This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 35, recorded on 11-12-13, November 12th, 2013. One of those fun number days. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-hosts, uh, Lionel Chow from Cincinnati Children's. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Tim. Good to be with you this week. Great to have you again, and also Robin Dennis. Robin, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks, Tim. So Robin's in our studio, and Lionel's on Skype, and also in our studio is a guest today, Dr. Robert Johnson. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you very much for having me. So we have Robert here because he's an expert in the topic of today, ependymoma, and Lionel will be presenting a, a paper about ependymoma and proton beam therapy in a little bit. But why don't we start off by just chatting a little with Robert. Robert is an assistant professor of pediatrics here, a Ph.D. scientist running a research lab studying a pendemome in the lab. Tell us about how you got into science in general, maybe when you were little or I don't know when that <laughs> happened. But what, what attracted you in general to science research and then ultimately to a pediatric cancer? Basically, my interest in science was kind of for lack of a better word, accidental. I was, at least I should say biology, I was originally wanted to be an engineer. And while I was an undergraduate, I worked in a couple of research laboratories, and I really, really enjoyed biology. So I just decided, hey, you know, this is what I love. Might as well just do it. Where were you living then? Or so I, was in, I, I went to uh, Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, um, you know, world-renowned hospital so forth. I ended up getting a, a one of my uh, research interests was in cancer research, um, just quite honestly, just simply because it seemed interesting. Um, so I worked in a lab there for pretty much for my four years as an undergrad, um, really, really enjoyed it and just figured, let's just go with this thing. Whose lab was that? So I was in uh, Andrew Yeager. And once I graduated, I worked in laboratories for another five or six years at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, gaining more experience, diversifying my portfolio, as they say. And while I was there, uh, people encouraged me to go and get my PhD, which I did um, at uh, Cornell, which was right next door, Cornell Medical College. Um, loved it there. Continued doing uh, cancer research. Actually, that's all I really know is cancer research. Whose lab did you work at? at Cornell? I worked at uh, in Dr. Kathleen Scotter's lab. Um, she was working in transcriptional regulation and multidrug resistance, which is, um, I, I don't know if you guys have touched on the topic, but it, it's, a, it's a huge problem um, when it comes to uh, chemotherapies and, and treatments that tumors become resistant to, to, can to cancers and become resistant to multimodal therapies. Um, so we were trying to figure out new ways to combat that at a transcriptional uh, level. Then I decided I didn't like that anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was too artificial, um, and I realized that I really really did like um, more uh, systems based biology, working with mice and rats and whole 
biology. So was the transcription work in cells then, or just in? So we did in a little, a little bit of both in vivo, um, and in vitro. So in cells as well as um, in um, test tubes. Like most things, if you get good at it, you can kind of, especially in in vitro systems, you can kind of make it do what you want it to do, which is probably not the best way to do science. So um, (laughs) I realized this is probably not the greatest thing in the world. So I went off and and, uh, uh, was able to get a postdoc in uh, St. Jude's um, working on more um, systems biology and and cancer developing models for cancer. So Um, you really weren't necessarily specifically interested in pediatrics, you just happened to... Landed no, uh, exactly. a, a position at St. Jude. Exactly. I, I've mm-hmm. I've never taken the approach of any specific topic. I just kind of go where the wind goes. Um, and if uh, something seems interesting at the time, why not learn and go do it? So that's kind of how my career has gone. <laughs> and tell <laughs> so, us the lab you were in and, and what your project was there at St. Jude. Right. So I was working with uh, Dr. Richard Gilbertson, who um, is primarily involved in uh, pediatric brain tumors. So his two focus are ependymoma, which is your topic for today, but he also works on medulloblastomas. And what he wanted to do was develop mouse model systems um, for these particular diseases as a way of having a platform to look at novel treatments and better understanding the diseases. With that in mind, um, I joined his lab, which is pretty much what I wanted to do. I really wanted a more... Um, uh, holistic, uh, uh, whole systems approach of biology from start to finish. He had a project in which he basically really just wanted to find out how does an ependymoma develop? What are, the, what are required for this tumor to happen? Um, so what he did was we, we knew that you had to have a normal cell. Um, obviously, that's the normal cell is what is changed. And the question became, if we took a normal cell, how can we change it into a cancer cell? Um, so that basically was the project, and what we were able to do is isolate cells um, that we believed were the cell that that formed the ependymoma, and we changed it and manipulated it by overexpressing a uh, a receptor, a cell surface receptor, um, signaling receptor, and by doing so and reimplanting the cells into a mouse brain. So we took mouse cells, manipulated them, reintroduced them back into a mouse. Um, and ask what's going to happen. How'd you know what normal cells to start with? Were they ependymal cells? Or so, <laughs> and so, by the way, I was I was just at the San Diego meeting, the AACR Pediatric Cancer right. Meeting, and he gave an awesome talk there. One thing I got to say about Richard is he 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 does know how to balance the the clinical with the research, um, and his his predominant goal, and 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 I and I, I really appreciate the way he does it, is to effectively find ways for treatment. So. Even though it's basic science, it has a clinical bent. It has a translational bent. To that end, what previously to my getting to the lab, what they did was they um, tried to identify, tried to find um, what's called a molecular signature of an ependymoma. And effectively, this is what a lot of people do with when they try to characterize tumors in broad general terms, is they look at the gene expression um, and potentially genomic uh, DNA changes, losses or gains or what have you, and they try to see what makes this thing different from the normal. Um, And by doing so, you can basically get a profile of that tumor. And what we found was that certain signatures of ependymomas seem seem to be found in specific types of normal cells within the mouse, within the brain. And by mapping the expression of what we saw in the tumor, 
with what we believe to be the normal expression in the brain, we're able to pinpoint a cell of interest. So almost like there's a signature, a gene signature echo exactly. in the tumor of the exactly. original cell it came from. Exactly. That's fascinating. And, it, okay. and, it, and, and, surprise, and not surprisingly, most tumors have them, but what ends up happening is that signal gets buried. And as, as everybody knows, a tumor cell is dysregulated. That means that the normal function is gone. Um, and now it has these, these aberrant crazy functions. And the more crazy function you have, the less normal function you see. So you have to basically extract all that background noise, um, because it's no longer normal to see that normal, to see that signal. And fortunately for us, we were able to at least find certain things, hallmark what we called signature genes that were retained in the tumor that were remnants of that normal cell. So by using that, and, and again, it, it, like anything else, if you have enough of something, um, you can map and, and the more things intersect, the more real that the, the, the target is that you're looking for. So, you know, mapping. Um, and by doing that, we were able to find what we believe to be what they call the cell of origin or the normal cell that in the pendomoma does that normal because cell have a name and a it's location? Called, I'm sorry, yeah, it's <laughs> called the radioglial cell. And these cells are located in the ventricular system uh, of the central nervous system. So was this a candidate um, for the origin before these studies, or was it totally, totally out of left field and unknown? So, it was, so most people believe, because it was a, 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 a pendomoma, given the name, that in the pendomal cell, and ependymal cells are also part of the vasculature. So it was believed that the ependymal cell in and of itself was that cell of origin. So just for listeners who don't know this, the ependymal cells are the lining of exactly. the ventricular system, right? The fluid-filled right. parts of the brain. So, right. Um, Effectively, what we, what we identified were within that lining, they're actually what they call stem cells. And what these cells are are very early, are cells early in development, and they have the ability to... Um, change and form the other cells of the nervous system, neurons and astrocytes and so forth. And what we found was it was these cells that seemed to have that signature for the ependymoma, not necessarily the, the ependymal uh, cells. Um, and what we did was we were able to um, isolate these cells and culture them in, in, in tissue culture. Um, and we were able to purify out all the extra cells that are around and really get a nice pure population of these radioglial cells, neuro, whether effectively are embryonic neurostem cells. Um, once we were able to do that, we knew that if we made specific, we, or I should say we hypothesized that if we could manipulate these cells, if they truly were the cell of origin for the disease, that over time they would change and the tumor that would be developed from these cells would in fact be an ependymoma. And that's in fact what we got. What was also kind of interesting was that it was specific to the receptor that we overexpressed. So so we were able to do quite a number of different targets um, and most of them didn't work. I mean, so the fact that we were actually able to find one that actually gave us the disease yeah. is kind of, you know, the needle in the haystack where you actually sit on the needle and you're like, wow, that hurt. That's kind of what it was like. <laughs> only, only the pain was good. <laughs> so some that actually illustrates an important point in, in funding research. We often write a grant and we're going to do X, Y, and Z and get this yeah. result. But it's not, you're not accounting for the the twenty things that didn't work exactly that, that exactly. still have to be paid for. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, that's a good. You know, good so point. I mean, it was it was one of these projects where you know he presented it to us, um, and. You know, the general idea was it's either going to work and we're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to be in like 
good standing in the science world, or I'll probably have to work at Walmart and call <laughs> science a day. <laughs> so you, so you, you, you were successful in that, and so now you're got your own lab here at Nationwide Children's. You're continuing those kinds of studies, right? And what, yes. what's the importance of having a mouse model of a pendomoma? Well, like I said, a mouse model is a way for us to be able to test and look at tumor development and treatment outside of a human setting. I mean, we, we really can't treat patients and, and for experimental therapies and so forth. So you need another platform in which to be able to test the theory to see if things work. Um, and the closer the model system is to the real disease, the better the chances are that if something works on your model, that it's actually going to work in the patient population you're interested in. Now, for us, fortunately, the mouse model that we developed is really, really similar to the human disease. What we believe is that anything that we test in our mouse model, if it works, that it should be able to be easily translatable um, and probably be able to actually be implemented in, in the human disease. So that's the thought we all, we all hope that's the case. That's what we're putting <laughs> As they say, though, it's easy to cure a mouse and much harder to cure a person. Surprisingly, yes. you know. <laughs> so interestingly, though, we'll be talking today about a paper that has really only been, as far as I know, um, performed and tested in people. So Lionel, can you give us a few tidbits about a pendomoma just clinically, how common is it, etc., and, and tell us what proton beams are and then tell us about the paper. Yeah, absolutely. So actually that introduction by Rob really leads well into uh, in, into this uh, paper, the discussion of this paper. So first of all, the paper is entitled Proton Radiotherapy for Pediatric Central Nervous System Ependymoma, Clinical Outcomes for 70 Patients. And it is published in the journal Neuro-Oncology. Looks um, like Advanced Access Online was October 6th, so just a few weeks ago, a month ago. Yes, that's right. And the authors of this paper come from the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Children's Hospital of Boston. First author is Shannon M. McDonald, who is a radiation oncologist uh, there. Ependymoma is, uh, as, as Rob was saying, is, is, is a tumor, a brain tumor, a central nervous system tumor um, that uh, falls within the general category of glial tumors. It's actually the third most common pediatric brain tumor uh, primary brain tumor in incidence, falling behind astrocytomas and medulloblastomas. And so that actually translates into about 10% of all primary brain tumors in kids. Uh, and number-wise, that would be maybe roughly, let's say, 300 or so patients a year in the United States. The peak incidence in um, kids is about the three to six-year range of age, but 50% of uh, cases in the pediatric age group occur in uh, less than five years of age. So we're talking about a very young group of kids here, and we'll discuss uh, what that entails in terms of um, our therapeutic options for, for these patients. As with most brain tumors in the childhood age group, uh, 75% of the ependymomas that occur in children uh, ha occur in the posterior fossa. So that's um, in the part of the brain that is below the cortex, which is sort of a, you know what we think of as the working part of the brain. Um, it's in the posterior fossa, which contains the cerebellum and the brainstem. And this also poses its own problems too. So ependymomas generally are classified as either being having a classical histology, and these are grade two tumors. So uh, the grading system is uh, set out by the World Health Organization, and grade two tumors would be 
are considered low-grade tumors, okay? So about two-thirds of ependymomas in the pediatric age group are grade 2 classical tumors. One-third of the tumors, the other third of the tumors are of grade 3 histology, and this is generally delineated by the fact that there is anaplasia at the histological level in, uh, in, and this is a nuclear feature of these, uh, of the cells that is uh, very abnormal. We call it anaplasia. So let, I guess just let's pause there for a second because some people say, well, there's, there's no benign brain tumor, you know, histologically benign, but anything that's growing in the brain mm -hmm. has the potential to be lethal. Now, now technically, uh, our audience probably knows to be malignant, something has to be able to spread to other sites, uh, in the body. And so things that are malignant in the brain would have the capability of spreading elsewhere. Appendomonium can certainly spread within the brain, so would that still be considered malignant, and does that only happen with the higher-grade versions? So, you know, I totally agree with you. Um, in, in my own practice uh, as a neuro-oncologist, I, uh, I never use the words benign and rarely use the word malignant when I talk to parents. I, I totally agree with you that, the, uh, you know, I don't think that there, is, there are any intracranial tumors that can be, uh, that, that you can classify as being benign because it's a these are these are masses that are growing within an enclosed space, and so they're going to cause problems to the other tissue that are within that enclosed space. Ependymomas can spread, can be quite infiltrative, and can have metastases within the brain, um, so-called drop metastases. So uh, tumors can start um, in the posterior fossa, and then metastatic spread can go down the spine. There can be metastatic spread that is what we call leptomeningeal. So these are tumors that are crawling along the surface of the brain. And grade two tumors can also have uh, this metastatic spread or can develop uh, over time anaplasia that, that, that becomes metastatic in this sense. So let me ask Robert, does any of his models show anaplasia and do they have leptomeningeal spread? Or Yes, yes. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> so we're, our model seems to be a very aggressive form of the disease, which is kind of rare. Uh, but we do have an anaplasia. It seems to be very uh, very metastatic, very infiltrative, grade three, <laughs> easily nasty. <laughs> yeah, okay. very nasty. How long do your right. mice survive once you once they get a tumor? So it takes a while for the tumor to to act for for the cells to actually transform. But once it's transformed, within a month or two, the animal pretty much you can see tumor throughout the the brain. And and unfortunately, if the animal lives long enough, you'll also see it through the spines. Prior to this study, uh, you know, there had been many studies that have sort of established that the strongest predictor, the strongest prognostic indicator of survival for ependymoma is the extent of surgical resection. And therefore, you know, a gross total resection where you achieve the surgeon is able to take out the entire tumor visually and on post-operative MRI scanning, there is no longer any vis uh, visible tumor uh, on that scan. These patients are known to do much better than uh, anything less than a gross total resection. The other uh, prognostic indicators uh, include the location of the tumor. So as I said, 75% of cases in the pediatric age group occur in the posterior fossa, but those that occur in the, uh, in the supratentorial region or in the, you know, the upper parts of the brain tend to do better than tumors that are below um, uh, in the posterior fossa. And then there is some association between the grade of the tumors, so grade 2 tumors tend to do better than grade 3 tumors, but this may also be tied to the location of the tumor. Now, interestingly, you know, radiation therapy has long been a, uh, a mainstay of uh, primary therapy for these tumors. I'll come back to that in a second. 
the important thing, and this is where, uh, you know, the work that Rob is doing and that Richard Gilbertson is doing are so important, is that to date, there really has been no chemotherapeutic regimen, agent, or uh, or any kind of chemotherapeutic type of intervention that has been shown to be effective to allow us to avoid radiation therapy or to enhance the effects of radiation therapy. So, so, so this is one of these diseases where, uh, you know, we would love to have chemotherapy for these kids, especially the, the, the kids that are less than three, but we really have nothing proven efficacy to offer them. So if Rob's models actually reflect the human disease, chemotherapy wouldn't work in your models. Do, do you see an effect with standard cytotoxic chemotherapy? Okay. Yeah, so we, we're in the process now of looking at, okay. looking at that. Do you think that's just generally be mechanistic reason because a lot of the chemotherapies don't get enough concentration into the blood, I mean into the brain, or is it just the agents you think we just need better agents to, to attack the type of cells that cause the ependymoma? I honestly think that it's a function of the cell that the tumor came from. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's intrinsic of the tumor, and that's just the way it is. Uh, I think at the end of the day, if you're really going to have to tackle this problem, you're going to have to deal with the fact that it came from most likely a highly chemo-resistant cell of origin. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, Robin. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we deal with, we, we kind of struggle with this all the time. But I think the, the, you know, one way to think about this is that, you know, of the three major, uh, you know, malignant or highly aggressive tumors that are, that occur in the brain, medulloblastoma, glioblastoma, and ependymoma, we know that chemotherapy can get into the brain, can get into medulloblastomas because there's a clear benefit to chemotherapy in treating medulloblastomas. So, uh, you know, I tend to think, uh, uh, having that data that, you know, I can't imagine that the blood-brain barrier or the blood-tumor barrier is so different exactly. between medulloblastoma and these other types of uh, and highly aggressive tumors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to think that the chemotherapy can access these two, these different types of tumors, but we just have, we just don't know. I think there, as Rob was saying, there's an intrinsic resistance astrocytomas and ependymomas to our current chemotherapeutic agents. Well, hopefully with those in hand, your cells in hand, then we'll be able to screen drugs or and test, exactly. figure out other things yeah. that could be tried. Herein lies the problem is that uh, I just told you that you know, we don't have chemotherapeutic agents that are effective, and we know that radiation is effective. You guys will know, working with kids, that uh, traditionally we have really been very resistant to offer upfront radiotherapy to children less than three years of old, three years of age, because of the severe long-term sequelae with radiation therapy at this young of an age, and and, and you know by sequelae I mean uh, re- regarding growth, regarding uh, cognition, and and those kinds of things, of course. However, a landmark study, which is sort of the precursor to this study was published in 2009 in the Lancet Oncology, the journal Lancet Oncology. Uh, and the authors of this, uh, this landmark study were from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. First author was Tom Merchant. And in this study called uh, Conformal Radiotherapy After Surgery for Pediatric Ependymoma, Prospective Study, these authors demonstrated that by using conformal radiotherapy, which is using traditional radiotherapy, and I'll get to that in a minute, but applying it such that you... Uh, shape the doses of radiotherapy only to where the tumor is. So this is termed involved field conformal radiotherapy that you could achieve really good survival data up to 85% overall survival, even in patients less than three years of age and with very tolerable side effects in the short term 
as well as in long-term follow-up that they've had for these patients. So that would, um, that would be using what we call conventional radiation, yes, just mapping uh, it. Uh, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Conventional radiotherapy or IMRT, I guess. So let's talk a little bit about radiation therapy then. My first disclaimer is going to be that I'm not a radiation oncologist, and so I may get some of the physics wrong because I, I really don't know what I'm talking about here. But, but um, um, you know, my simplistic uh, understanding of radiation therapy is that, first of all, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're delivering ionizing radiation, and most frequently, especially in the pediatric age group, this is done by applying external beams of ionizing radiation to the tumor. The type of beams that we're using are actually photons, and these are generated by what's called a linear accelerator. It's a big machine. And so photons are uh, a type of energy that's basically electromagnetic energy. And this includes, of course, light that's in the visible spectrum that we see. But when the, the, the light waves that we are able to visualize uh, as humans are between a very certain wavelength, and when you get to shorter and shorter wavelengths, you increase the energy of that electromagnetic radiation. And you get into ranges uh, that we of, of, of waves that we call X-rays and gamma rays. So in general, the LINAX, the uh, linear accelerators that are used to generate the external beam, are generating X-rays uh, at very high energy. Now, the, the major problem with using photons as a source of ionizing radiation is that the beam will ent enter the tissue at one side, and it also exits the tissue at the other end. In other words, all the, the entire tissue that's in between the entry and exit beam is exposed to the ionizing radiation. Therefore, you're going to expose a fair amount of normal tissue in whatever location you choose to try to treat your, um, your tumor. And it's the exposure of the normal tissue to this irradiation that leads to most of the side effects that we see with radiation therapy, both uh, short-term side effects and long-term side effects. So researchers have long been interested in using alternative forms of ionizing radiation that will try to um, mitigate these side effects. And proton beam radiotherapy has received a lot of uh, interest because what you're doing here is that you're using a charged particle, which is the proton, to deliver this ionizing radiation. And by using this charged particle, what happens is that the energy from that's carried by this charged particle is deposited according to what is called by physicists a Bragg peak, B-R-A-G-G peak. And what happens is that the energy is deposited as the particle enters the tissue but then because it's a particle and it's hitting against other tissue, you know, the, the, the density of the tissue, the particle actually will stop at a certain depth and deposit the majority of its energy at that depth. So what you see is if you were to plot out this Bragg curve, you would see the energy being deposited a little bit at the surface. And then there's a, a, a sharp rise and a sharp fall at a very specific distance of entry into the tissue. And you can control how deep that uh, particle is going to be deposited. And distal to that deposition of the particle, there's very little exposure to ionizing radiation in deeper tissues. So here, you can uh, sort of take advantage of this favorable po uh, profile and couple it with, you know, aiming these beams from multiple angles so that you treat just the tumor at a very specific depth and expose proximal tissues um, at lower doses and almost and expose distal tissues almost uh, not at all. 
Does that description kind of yeah? Sense? I think yeah. you. Yeah, I think you're. Uh, you understand the physics pretty well, according <laughs> to, to me. <laughs> you did a great job on that. So that I guess the risk then, if you're going to drop off the beam pretty quickly, or or even make it rise and 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 not have and have it very focused, is might you miss a few cells? Might you cut it yes. off too soon? So what what is required, obviously, is that you have a very careful planning of the way you're going to deliver this energy to the tumor. And this is really, really well described in actually figure one of the paper where they show two adjacent um, CT scans of the same tumor and they show you how they planned out the therapy on the left-hand side in panel A with proton beams using three different beams and on the right-hand side using intensely intensity-modulated radiotherapy or IMRT, which is sort of the traditional form of uh, conformal radiation. So with each patient, what the radiation oncologist will do is that they'll take their CT or MRI images, find out where the tumors are, and then have a computer program plan out the best approach for reaching all aspects of the tumor, you can see on that left-hand graph that the red color indicates the target dose that you're aiming for. And you can see that the target dose is very evenly distributed uh, across the entire tumor. Uh, whereas on the right-hand side, when you use IMRT, even though you're using multiple beams coming in at different angles, your ability to achieve the target dose uniquely in the tumor and not have too much uh, scatter into the surrounding bone and other brain tissue is is much more difficult. So um, our, our listeners can't see the pictures, but it does yes. seem like, you know, I always thought a proton beam is just reducing the amount of exposure to the normal tissue, but it seems from this mm -hmm. that it's also increasing the amount in the targeted right tissue. Right where you want it to be. Yeah. yeah. Although I also note that it doesn't take down the normal tissues to zero. There's still tracks along those beams mm -hmm. that's absolutely, passing through normal absolutely. tissue. So, so as I described, there is still an entry beam, and the proximal tissues are definitely exposed. Mm -hmm. And so you still have the problem that all of our patients do of um, of, of dermatitis, right? Uh, uh, irritation, like a sunburn on the skin, basically, where the, uh, where the, the beams are going in. Most of our patients who uh, undergo this type of therapy still have alopecia or loss of hair uh, that's transient thankfully, uh, in most cases, but, but they will lose their hair. They will get you know, this sunburn-like irritation on their skin. And that's very similar to what happens in IMRT. But as you can see from that picture, you're sparing very critical structures. And we'll mm -hmm. talk about some of the critical structures that, uh, that are in the way for this particular disease. Historically, proton beam facilities are, well, number one, they're very expensive to build. They're fairly recent. So the first, I did a little bit of, uh, of, of checking. The first uh, proton beam facilities that were available were built, was built in 1994 in California. The one uh, in sorry. Loma Linda? Or? Yeah, Loma Linda, 1990 yeah. in, in California. The facility at the Mass General dates from 2001. And it was mm -hmm. the second facility to be built in the United States. So this group actually has probably one of the largest experience with proton beam, especially in this age group. You guys may know as well that, you know, proton beam now is that the theoretical benefits of proton beam, which are I, I've described, especially in that figure one there, and I've described to you, uh, are such that it, it's almost like it, it, 
as a clinician, I'm, I'm obliged to tell all of my patients about the fact that proton beam radiotherapy is available and um, that we could send our patients to another facility to get that therapy as opposed to staying with us uh, you know, locally to get IMRT. It depends on the diagnosis, of course, but we do have to mention the, uh, this these times uh, at this, you know, in this day and age, we have to mention uh, proton beam because of um, all the uh, uh, excitement about it. Now, this is in sharp contrast, though, to the actual evidence that's actually in the literature about the uh, first of all the efficacy of proton beam radiotherapy and and also the, the these theoretical benefits we actually don't have uh, hard data to to uh, uh, say that these theoretical benefits are are really there so that's why papers like the one that we're going to talk about today are really important yeah and interestingly you know there's a lot of controversy about that as you mentioned but i heard recently that california's insurance program is stopping no longer paying for that for prostate cancer, which has mm-hmm. really been the bread and butter of the finances that have mm-hmm. been underlying most proton centers. So mm-hmm. it's a little concerning. I think they're they're traditionally been more a more expensive modality, and now they're feeling at least, at least in that disease, it's not mm-hmm. beneficial to justify the extra cost. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. In fact, there, you know there are many uh, uh, reports coming out, especially within the last year. Of as I said, there were theoretical the theoretical benefits of, of using it in prostate cancer was to decrease the uh, uh, incidence of, of urinary incontinence in, pa- in patients that were getting radiotherapy, and also of improving sexual function in in, in men uh, in older men um, that were getting radiotherapy. And it turns out that um, these were you know as I said theoretical benefits. And when push came to when you actually did the treatment on a large group of patients that uh, the incidence of these side effects was not improved in patients treated with proton beam. Now, that being said, we have a very different problem in kids, of course. We're not, you know, worried about, uh, we're not treating the prostate. We're treating the brains. We're worried about cognitive function, which is a whole different ball of wax. We're worried about growth, about exposure to the bones. We're worried about hearing, which we'll talk about in this paper as well. So uh, just uh, so quickly, uh, just to describe the population of kids they looked at, these patients were collected from the beginning of when the facility opened in 2000 and 2001 up until uh, February 2011. We're looking at 70 uh, consecutive patients that were treated with conformal proton beam radiotherapy. It's important to note, though, that only 39% of these patients came from the New England area. Since this was like, a, you know, a, a new center, a lot of, they were getting a lot of referrals from a lot of places. Uh, so, you know, 61% of these patients came from outside of the New England area. And this is going to be a problem when we talk about follow-up. The clinical characteristics are described in, in table one, and I won't go through them, but basically this is a population of kids that's fairly uh, similar to the general population of kids with, with ependymoma. There's about the right percentage, there's about the right age group. You know, 50% of the kids were less than three years of age. I see they treated some young as three months, which is pretty mm-hmm. striking. Absolutely, absolutely. There was, uh, you know, 73% of these uh, cases were infratentorial. So these these numbers kind of matched the numbers that I told you at the very beginning. Now, there was a fairly high number of uh, anaplastic tumors in this group. And that may, once again, come from that referral bias mm-hmm. where uh, people were sending, you know, the more aggressive children to for, for this therapy. So looking at the outcome, the overall outcome, this is in figure two, where they show a series of Kaplan-Meier curves. So in figure 2a, they show you the overall survival of these patients. And it's important to note that uh, the timing of their, their follow-up, they, they followed up these patients for an average of 46 months, a median of 46 months, I should say. So their overall survival and progression-free survival is uh, calculated at three years. And when I when we compare it to the merchant, the original Tom Merchant paper, that survival is at five years. So there is a little bit of difference here. But nevertheless, the overall survival they calculate here is 95% 
uh, at three years, and the progression-free survival is 76% at three years. And these are very favorable numbers compared to the Tom Merchant data. Just for our listeners, the difference between those two curves is patients who are still alive but have disease left, right? So 76% is progression-free survival. So that means, so you said uh, 85% was the overall survival? 95%. 95%, so about 19% of the patients weren't cured. But they're still they were alive. alive. They're still yeah. alive. Right? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. They they had evidence of progression of the tumor after the therapy. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. But that's comparable to the original data that you cited by Dr. Merchant. That's correct. Okay. So um, yes, that's correct. Now the other thing that this paper uh, so so those are very good numbers for so it's, it's showing that the, this type of therapy is at least as good probably I mean we have to let this ma- data mature a little bit more but it is at least as good as IMRT. It's important in, in, in panel C of figure two, they confirm the, the, the information that we knew from before, which is that uh, if you had a gross total resection, if the surgeon removed all of the tumor, uh, that you had a better outcome than if you had less than gross total, so either a subtotal or a near total resection. And the numbers for that are progression-free survival of 88% for gross total versus 54 for subtotal. And an overall survival, which is uh, uh, not in the figure two, but it's in table number two, an overall survival of 97% for gross total versus 90% for subtotal. And these numbers are statistically significant when you crunch the, the, the statistics. That means that things are aligned with what we know so far, I guess. Yes, that's correct. They, they looked at other features that might predict survival, some of them that I mentioned to you before. There was a slight uh, favoring of tumor location, so the progression-free survival was, was slightly better for supratentorial tumors compared to posterior fossa tumors. This was not statistically significant when they looked at over all survival, but was when they looked at progression-free survival, and probably because the, the, the cohort of patients here, the number of patients is too small. In this particular cohort of patients, and, may, and once again, this may be because of the referral bias, the tumor grade was not predictive of progression-free or overall survival, and that's shown in figure 2D, where you can see that the differentiated or classical tumors and the anaplastic tumors, the, the curves uh, overlap pretty much. Okay, so these data, in, in summary so far, basically show that those with proton beams seem to do equivalently to those who have been treated with conventional, traditional Yes, therapies. yes, that's okay. correct. So the big okay. question then is what about side effects? Yes. So actually, let's uh, you know, the, the second part of the paper was looking at patterns of relapse, but I think we can skip that uh, in the interest of time, and plus there's not much that we can, that, that, that's really new about that. Yeah. But uh, when we look at the side effects, this is really um, uh, important. The big caveat, as I said, is that, that this is a referral-based nature. They have a referral-based nature of their patient population. So they were only do, able to do some of the testing for side effects on a subset of the tumors, okay, uh, of the patients, I should say. So 32 patients out of their initial group of 70 had testing for thyroid hormone or uh, thyroid function at a median of 42 months after they received the radiation therapy. And only one patient out of those 32 had evidence, biochemical evidence of hypothyroidism, so low thyroid function. Uh, If we compare this to uh, traditional therapy, uh, I would say that now, it, it depends on what region of the brain you're irradiating because the thyroid, uh, the, the hypothalamus is, is the region that you're looking at. And, and the thyroid gland in the anterior neck and the hypothalamus are the regions that you're looking at for, for thyroid function. Uh, depending on what part of the body you're irradiating, you will or will not affect these tissues. But we 
very commonly, and I would say uh, 25 to 50% of our patients that get uh, scattered radiation to the neck are going to have thyroid deficiency at some point in time after the therapy. So having only one patient with thyroid deficiency at 42 months is, is a pretty good number. Uh, so the next uh, side effect they're looking at is growth hormone deficiency. The growth hormone uh, is obviously impo important in this age group for uh, linear growth between the age of three to you know, 16 or 17. It's controlled by a region of the brain called the pituitary gland, which can sometimes receive scatter radiation therapy from IMRT. And so the idea is that if, if you're using proton beam, maybe you can spare that region. So they tested 25 patients for growth hormone deficiency, once again, at 42 months, and they found only two that were found to be deficient and receiving growth hormone, supplementary growth hormone therapy. Now, the big problem with this analysis was that they did not do what would be considered to be the gold standard test for looking at growth hormone deficiency, which is called a stimulation test. You give the patient uh, a substance that's going to cause the body to secrete a lot of growth hormone, and you look for that maximal secretion. And they didn't actually do that test. What they did was that they did a surrogate test that looked at uh, a level of a hormone called IGF-1 as a measure of growth hormone deficiency. So that is um, uh, a one deficiency of this paper. I noticed it um, says nine additional patients demonstrated deficient levels of IGF-1, but we have not been diagnosed as growth hormone deficient. Yeah, clinically. So this correct. so this may be a little bit of an underestimate then? Is that what, they're, it, what you're saying? That's correct. Maybe I, I would they say will that become could, growth hormone deficient at some point. Yes, yes. And, and that data, the, the, those nine patients, uh, they actually present that data probably uh, was asked for by, the, by a reviewer because mm -hmm. they're presented as an appendix and there's a little table at the very end of the paper that shows that data. Okay. And then the third side effect that they're going to concentrate on is, uh, is hearing. And that's because, as I mentioned, these tumors are in the posterior fossa and the cochlea is very close to, to the posterior fossa and can sometimes, especially with IMRT, receive scattered radiation therapy. And hearing loss is a very important side effect in, in, in kids, of course. So they were able to assess in 23 patients by audiology the hearing at a median of 27 months after therapy. And they found two patients to have hearing loss. And when they looked carefully at the, the type of therapy those two patients had, they actually received, uh, they, they could calculate the scatter amount of radiation therapy that those two patients received to their cochleas. And those two particular patients would have received a higher dose directly to the cochleas compared to the average patient in their group. So that kind of makes sense. And, and then the last piece of the puzzle in terms of side effects is cognition. I mentioned this. I think this paper is really just too early to assess cognition. The bottom line is that they had 14 patients that they were able to do complete neurocognitive testing on and 28 patients where they were able to do testing for adaptive skills and functional independence. And they found that at two years follow-up that there, there was no significant difference from the baseline to the follow-up. Um, and that this data matched really well with uh, Tom Merchant's uh, paper with IMRT. So uh, if you limit, in other words, if you limit radiation to the posterior fossa, you can spare uh, with IMRT or with uh, proton beam, you hopefully can spare the, the higher centers of the brain that are responsible for cognition and, and that kind of thing. Well, that's that's good news about this for sure. The other side effect we often think of with radiation is, sec you know, other cancers, radiation-inducing mm -hmm. second malignancy, but those take decades usually, right? Yeah. So They reported um, an incidence of probably, none. 
it's too uh, probably too soon to tell. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would agree that it's much too early to look at that. In the Tom Merchant paper, what they found was about an incidence of uh, 1.6%, and that was with a follow-up of about, I believe the average follow-up was about seven years on that paper. Yeah. Okay, so maybe not too much longer before we get another mm-hmm. report about this, but still yeah. only 1%. It's going to be hard to find, determine whether there's a difference or not, because yeah. it'll come down to whether they found it in one patient or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as I said at the outset, I mean, I think this is a really important paper because we don't have a lot of, you know, hard data to prove the efficacy of radiotherapy, of proton beam radiotherapy, and also the safety of it. But, but this paper certainly gives us, you know, a lot of, uh, of reason to recommend this type of therapy for our patients, especially our younger patients with uh, ependymoma and who have had a, uh, well, have had a gross total resection or even a subtotal resection. Yeah, you know, I've talked to lots of neuro-oncologists around the country and, um, it seems to be a varying opinion about whether proton is really useful or not. I hear anecdotal reports of patients with higher incidence of angiomas and things, and it's just not been clear to me yet that there's a, a, a total consensus around the country. Yeah, I, I would I would totally agree with you, and and in fact, I kind of feel the same way. We definitely have seen anecdotally a higher incidence of radiation necrosis, which I didn't talk about. Basically, they didn't see any incidence of radiation necrosis, especially in the brainstem. But I know that we and uh, we have seen a lot of cases here of, of patients, younger patients that have been treated with proton beam that had uh, very severe cases of radiation necrosis in the brainstem that have required additional therapies, and and in some cases have led to uh, uh, mortality even. So. So is that thought because you're getting higher doses in the concentrated center of where you're radiating or what's the thinking behind that? Yeah. That is definitely the thinking is is that and and part of it also has to do with the fact that you know most of these proton beam uh, facilities are catered to the adult population. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the planning is very important for this. So when you're dealing with a small child with a small brain, being off by a couple of millimeters to the left or to the right uh, can have really devastating consequences if you're hitting that brainstem you know, just a little bit too much, the normal brainstem just a little bit too much. So if you get that high dose in in, in an adjacent tissue that's really just five millimeters uh, too far, you can have some of these devastating consequences. So you need to send them patients to a center that deals with pediatrics a lot, I guess. I totally agree with you, and that's that, that's sort of our practice here now as well. So is this paper? This paper, I think, overall is encouraging in terms of the field of proton, but maybe not definitive yet because it's early. But is it enough for you to recommend all your ependymomas patients to go for proton beam, or and 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 does it matter whether it's in the spine or not? Would that sway you? What's your current practice then? Our, our current practice here is that, you know, uh, we definitely recommend radiation therapy, first of all, for all of our young ependymoma patients. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into the decision as to where these patients and how these patients should be treated, which don't all have to do with the scientific evidence or proton versus IMRT. I mean, there's a lot of, so as you know, very well known, there's a lot of social factors involved too, because in the absence of having a proton beam radiotherapy facility across the street from me. I have to send my patients uh, many hours away, and there are limitations to being able to do that, of course. Where it is feasible, we, we certainly do try to, to, to get our patients to, into a proton beam uh, facility for this therapy, yes. So time is go- going on quite long. I apologize to our audience for that, but any final comments you want to make about it, Lionel? I appreciate your presenting it today. 
Oh yeah, no problem. Well, I want to thank you actually for for bringing this paper to our, our attention. I know you suggested that this paper should be uh, would be a great topic. Yeah, I th I hope that this is actually the first in a series of papers that will be coming out uh, that will look at um, a proton beam therapy for a variety of different types of tumors. I can tell you that the same group has just published a more preliminary data on medulloblastoma and PNETs uh, or supertentorial. Uh, primitive neuroectodermal tumors. This 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 paper came out in International Journal of Radiation Oncology. It has a very small group of patients, but basically showing the same thing that it's uh, safe to give and that the outcomes seem to be uh, just as good as using traditional uh, methods of of radiotherapy. So I think you know we hope that we'll see many more of these papers coming out. Many as 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 proton beam facilities that are popping up all over the country. Well, the the more information, the better. We need to make any of these decisions based on data. So it's really good to be reviewing some of the data. And mm -hmm. thanks for for presenting it today. So if any of our audience has any questions about it, I'd be happy to answer your emails or forward them on to Lionel or have us discuss them. If you've been listening to us, you know you can email us at twipfo at solvingkidscancer.org or follow us on Twitter at twipfo podcast and sign up for automatic notification with the RSS feed link. So thanks to the team at Solving Kid Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes our good friends Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications, and also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.